Hello, and welcome to Metachemistry. This is episode two, where we will be examining additional rule changes from N3 to N4 and the implications on tactics and gameplay within the ITS frame. Now, it can be said that with disruption comes opportunity. Within the context of Infinity, the release of a new edition, N4, while not being necessarily seismic, is without a doubt destabilizing in a disruptive event. It has taken a game state that has become over six years of play stable and well understood, and it's upended it. Of course, this can be disorienting when you no longer feel you have mastery or feel like you are being pushed away from the pl playing the game the way you have become accustomed to playing it. It's easy to become frustrated, even resentful. But disruption must be seen as creating the catalyst for change, and with it, the opportunity to leverage that change to your advantage. One of the areas ripe with opportunity is in understanding the changes and rules that N4 brings, both large and small. While the threshold for understanding the basics of gameplay in Infinity is rather low, even the most seasoned vets will be quick to acknowledge that it's the nuances that remain so elusive. The savvy player will recognize that it's in understanding the more situational rules that help shift the margins of a game. That might mean moving a loss to a draw, a draw to a minor win, and a minor win to a major one. And so episode two of Metachemistry is devoted to highlighting some of those changes and discussing the potential new tactics they bring. Of course, there is no way for us to be exhaustive in this. Rather, think of this as a discussion at pointing the way and highlighting the possibilities of further lines of inquiry. But before we do that, let's check in with our team. Guys, what's been going on? And maybe more specifically, what has captured your attention or your musings related to Infinity since we last spoke? Ian, what's going on, man? Uh, not a whole lot. Just... Uh dealing with the new lockdowns in Denver that we can't do a lot of in-person gaming right now. So I've been doing a lot of theory crafting, going over all the stuff of new ways to ruin my opponent's day as Ariadna. That's really kind of the best thing you can... This is like making lemonade out of lemons? Pretty much. <laughs> Nate, how about you? Pretty much just doing the dad life at the moment. The baby moved to a toddler bed so she can just leave her bed whenever she wants. That takes up most of my like after hours time. Uh, I've been doing a little bit of painting. Uh, I've done a little bit of work on a squalo in anticipation of getting that new cutter, which is just the prettiest thing, and it needs to be uh, needs to be in Daddy's hand soon. Good enough to get you to play Pano. Varuna. Let's just not use the Pano word. Excellent. Well, uh, I don't think I've had much going on with Infinity either. The Rona has definitely locked things down. I did get a game over the weekend and I was trying out an all remotes focused list using OSS. How'd that go? Yeah, I had some fun playing a spicy Eric in my garage. So we should probably tell the listeners about all of our Eric's. So uh, there are so many Eric's in our meta that we've had to begin giving them flavors. So we have an original Eric, we have uh, the Colonel Eric, we have a spicy Eric, a ghost pepper Eric, but yeah, we have a lot of Eric's, so that's how we diversify between them is by their uh, their KFC flavor. One of the things that came up in my game with Spicy Eric was that he did a nice setup where he had a Hundun 
heavy, uh, heavy rocket launcher in hidden deployment, and he was running a tag in his list. And he, uh, after going first, he withdrew the tag back to a defen defensive place with the Hundun kind of sitting in overwatch. And it was a pretty nice setup where even though I suspected that it was out there, he was able to get the jump on my link team, which that's what's great for a mini Noctifer like that. Now, it didn't work out for him. I ended up uh, saving my armor saves with Pavardi, and I could easily, I could definitely see how with Eric it was frustrating. He had had the perfect game plan, he had executed it well, and the dice didn't go his way. But one of the things I like to talk about with our folks in the meta is can we learn to divorce process from results? Part of success with Infinity is if you can focus on the having the right process even if you don't get the results that you necessarily want if you can roll the film back and go yeah but was the thinking correct or should i've done something different and even more difficult is when we get really good re results with a bad process and oftentimes we tend to overlook that bad process because of course the universe has to work in our favor that's the way it always works right but really making that divorce between process and results is a big part of analyzing a game and how you are approaching it. For sure, for sure. I think that it teaches you bad habits to win roles that you shouldn't, and it teaches you bad habits to use tactics that you shouldn't and get away with it. That uh, I think that's gonna give you a bad habit. And, and But vice versa, you have to be able to see that, yes, you did the right thing, you just lost the role and not change your strategy when that was the correct strategy. And I think, especially for you know the new to mid-level player, that's something that they should be working on is figuring out like, hey, did I do the right thing there? And I just lost anyway, because it's a dice game? Or did I did I choose something incorrectly? And Or is there a way that I could continue to milk more out of that? Oh, and I, I agree, absolutely. Uh, I've had quite a few games where I tactically have done absolutely everything right, my opponent's been sweating. They're going, I'm going to lose this. And then I can't roll higher than a two. And they're critting me, my face off on like fours. And that's happened quite a few times. And there's been other times where I've just looked at a, a thing and said, well, this is a bad idea, but screw it. And it's paid off miraculously when it by all rights should have failed instantly. It's what happens when you have random number generation for your results. Tactics can only mitigate so much of that, the dice roll. And I would also say that like doing nothing is probably the worst thing that you can do. Like if you have nothing else to do, take that combi rifle shot at that tag. If, if you have to get past it, if you don't have to get past it, ignore it. But if you have to get past something and all you've got it left is a combi rifle, combi rifles still kill things in this game. Maybe not a Yodam in cover. I was just going to say the Yodam in cover. Most things you still have a shot and people can roll badly and it can go down and that can just turn your game right around. That's sage advice. All right, let's move on to our main topic then. So we're going to be talking tonight about the some of the more prominent rules changes from N3 to N4. We're going to spend the first part of this episode engaging at what I would think are four main changes in rules that affect how we think about the game and how we play the game. So I thought we could look at criticals, dodging, cover, and hacking in that order. And then when we if we have some more time later on, we can engage some of the more granular changes that have that come up that are pervasive throughout the game that may not be as dominant as the four I just uh, articulated, but 
that still affect how we're thinking about how we can play the game. So to start us off then, let's talk about criticals. Ian, do you want to like define what the changes are for criticals for our audience? So this is probably the biggest change of N4 is the critical system. And for anybody that's uh, just getting into N4 and hasn't played before, or hasn't played Infinity at all, uh, in the prior editions, how it worked was after accounting for all of your positive and negative modifiers and finding out what your target roll on a, your dice was for your shot, or any roll, but particularly with shooting, if you rolled exactly that target number... Like, say, you're a ballistic skill 12, and you needed a 12. We'll keep it flat. And you rolled that 12. Not only did you auto-succeed, regardless of what your opponent's rolls were, but it was an automatic wound with no armor save allowed. And it could get very swingy, especially when you were doing all your great stuff and your opponent needs something super low and they crit you and you just go, okay, I just lost my guy. So now in N4, what that's changed to is that when you get your target number... It's still an automatic success regardless of anything your opponent has rolled, but instead of an automatic wound with no armor save possible, it causes an additional armor save on top of what would normally be caused. Uh, this is semi-ammunition, special ammunition dependent. Most of them have that exact same effect. It's kind of a big change. It shifts the things a lot in terms of survivability. Uh, the Yodam and cover had been mentioned that it can't be hurt by combi rifles now because it doesn't bypass the armor. Its armor is high enough at that point to completely ignore anything of damage 13 or less. That said, it shifts things a little bit in a different way with higher survivability potential amongst certain troop types, but it's still extremely lethal towards lighter armed troopers. So Nathan, unpack that a little bit more. Why is it more swingy? From my point of view, it's good on the lower end and it's bad on the upper end. So like like you were saying, like that... The Yodam is just a brick now that is immune to small arms fire, but a heavy infantry with maybe armor five or four can now die in one in one crit. That to me is a is a pretty big swing uh, of how usable this rule is. The old crit rule, the common the common saying was crits kill things, and I think that that's mostly still true now. But there's a lot of cases where that's not true, like uh, uh, tags and covers are going to be absolute monsters and you're going to need to bring things to deal with them now, which is a, it's a huge change from, eh, you could crit that thing off the table. So one of the things that would happen with tags is you would go and you you'd push your tag forward. You'd camp out in front of your opponent's defenses. You'd put your tag in suppression. You say, come at me, bro. And then some random fusilier would fire a shot and potentially score a crit and take one, two, or even a third wound, that, that third wound off your tag if things didn't go right. Now, there's a lot of other reasons why tags were a liability in N3, but this change with the crit mechanic seems to have shifted the meta so much that people are really uh, valuing armor more than ever before, and there's nothing more armored than a, a heavily outfitted tag. Is that what you're saying, Ian? Uh, yes. Uh, so... Because of the old mechanic completely ignoring armor, it devalued armor in the game, and a lot of people didn't want to pay the points to have armor because if they got crit, it didn't matter. So they would focus on cheap, lightly armored troops and take a ton of them. But now, with the new crit mechanic, especially combined with the 15 model maximum, you have to take some more expensive things. So it balances out in a different way 
where you have that incentive to take your heavy infantry or your tags, and they're going to be more survivable because they can't be automatically wounded. But that said, sometimes you get drilled through the eye socket and uh, your guy goes down to two wounds off of a crit. Adding this ability in of itself made a lot of armored units more viable. And I think that as people play, I think that that's going to shift the meta. Maybe maybe not everyone running tags, running two tags, but I think it's going to shift the meta towards the center line where it used to be that unless that heavy infantry had something real special or that tag did something that was really special, you weren't going to run it. And now I think there will be a, just having that armor as a backup piece is going to be nice for even just a basic specialist. Like a, a heavy infantry doctor is going to be a nicer piece on the table now because a couple of wounds and some armor and the potential to that it may not die in one crit. Now it could, it, that's, but it's more dice dependent, not just automatically you're, you're dying. So how do you guys think that this changes how you are thinking about list building and the tactics that you bring to the game? I'll tell you from my perspective, one of the things that I'm considering more is as an ALIF player, I run a lot of no wound incapacitation in my lists. And part of the value of having especially specialists who have that rule is that if I need to, in the late part of the game, make a run to score an objective. In N3, I was always able to calculate, I'm only gonna take this one shot. At the very worst, what can happen is I get crit and I take a wound, but I'll, I'll fall into no wound in cap and I be, I'll be able to push forward and get the objective that I needed. In N4, that changes my calculus a little bit. I have to be way more attentive to the possibility. It may not even change the decision in the moment, but I'm much more mindful of how this affects no wound incapacitation as many of those troops are also low armor. And as a result, they could, if they get crit, they could easily flub both their roles. Yeah, well, so I think it makes, like I said, armor is more valuable, but mathematically there's a higher lethality because your lighter guys, whether they're single wound or single wound with no wound in cap, they can die outright, and then you can't bring them out. You can't uh, heal them back up. And heavy infantry, they can still go down with that. So there's a lethality factor. And um, at least with Ariadna, I I don't feel it's changed a whole lot in how I'm approaching building my list as far as relying on armor. Because Ariadna's always kind of had a weird thing with uh, having some decent heavy infantry as far as armor goes. Uh, I think it's adjusting some of my list building in terms of anticipating what my opponent is going to bring and trying to take uh, specifically armor piercing weaponry that can come in on the flanks or forward deploy infiltrate up and to be in an advantageous position to deal with his heavier armor before it gets to near the objectives and be able to catch those things out of cover. For me, I don't think that it's changed the way that I'm building lists. The way that I like to run lists and the, the things that I put in those lists is more mission dependent than killing certain specific types of units. But I find that how I played on the field changes a bit differently. Using weapons or the weapon choice that has a higher armor penetration or that has the potential to cause more wounds or even a higher burst to, to go for crits, like specifically a Caliban. I like to run the MSV Spitfire Caliban. But if I'm going to run up against heavy armor, instead of just mindlessly shooting it with four dice for a bunch of orders, hoping to put some wounds on it, 
I'm very likely now to move and camo up to it and then decharge it in close combat. So you know, using the tools differently is more of what I'm changing now than building lists differently. That being said, I'm going to fit the cutter into a Varuna list because that seems super fun. And I like camo tags. That's a thing. So, And especially if you're running a cutter or any other tag, one of the things that you're less nervous about, and that, that's not to say that you still don't consider this, but you're ne- less nervous of, for instance, a, a warband like Galwegian running up and going crit fishing with Berserk and putting an auto wound on you, where now even if they score that crit, you're taking two armor saves instead of taking an automatic wound. It's much less of an effective tool for a six-point model to try to take down a 90-point model. And I think just rolling a save against crits gives you just a touch more agency in what's going on in the field. Like, I feel like I rolled that, and and that's why it lost a wound, rather than, oh, he, he crit me again, dang it, and I lost this guy. Now I get to roll... So I feel like I have a little more agency in what's happening. Uh, it's not a whole lot, but it's a little bit. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. In fact, at, as I look back on all the games that I've been playing in, since N4 released, I feel like crits feel much less impactful. They may be this, getting the same results as N3 version of crits did, but I think you're mu- you feel much li- less likely to say, oh, I got crit off the table because of... And so it just feels maybe less memorable is what I'm saying. It is less cinematic. You're like you're not, you know, punching through tank armor with your pistol and somehow killing the thing. It's just give having agency in a game that gives you agency on your opponent's turn is nice. So just to keep that kind of motif going, where you have agency in what happens on the table, even if it is you know rolling to kill your own guy because you failed your saves. And one thing that didn't change in N4 is that the crit still is super important in that it's an auto win, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You still win that roll. So even if it doesn't die, like you're not taking saves if you crit them. Okay, I want to move us on to the next part of our rules discussion, and that has to do with dodging. They have done something very interesting, and we talked about how they approached the streamlining process with N4, taking a whole bunch of convoluted rules and streamlining them into a much more efficient and elegant rule system. And nothing typifies this more than what they've done with dodging. They took the change facing, they took engage, they took all the dodge mechanic, both in the active and the reactive turns, and they streamlined it all into one basic rule set. So Nate, do you want to talk us through a little bit about what dodging is now in N4 and how that change uh, is significant? A, it's just easier to use now being one thing that covers everything. Uh, So when you're dodging, uh, you're going to roll your fizz stat versus versus the incoming shots and it used to be that you have to choose which kind of dodge that you're going to do are you going to do a dodge change face are you going to do this dodge engage are you going to dodge disengage there there are just so many different things that you could choose to do and you may pick the wrong one or may not be legally able to do one so making it all fit into one is elegant it just works fantastic played a number of games and i keep saying like i'm going to change face and they're like you don't have to do that anymore that's just part of dodge. It's like, oh, right, right, right. I remember. I know that. Yeah. So I think I just think that it's it's one of the simplified things in this in this version of the game that is just brilliant. I absolutely agree. It makes the game faster. Actually, you're not calculating all the different options. 
you just know you're dodging. And not just in decision-making does it make things faster. In actual gameplay, it makes the game faster that in the active and the reactive turn, regardless, if you're dodging, you're moving forward. So one of our buddies in our local meta, Dexter, who kind of has stepped away from Infinity for a little bit, but he still keeps tabs on it. When he heard about this rule, he basically said, wait a second. You're saying that if you dodge, they can't respond to your dodge movement because it happens at the end of the, at the resolution of the order. Theoretically, you could be able to move all the way across the board with ever, without ever having to interact with your opponent at all. Now that's something only Dexter would come up with, but yeah, like it just has sped up the game and made it way more dynamic, I think. Well, there's a couple of things, a couple of things about that. One Dexter never dodges, period. He will literally say shoot on a minus 12 with a ballistic skill 11 guy. He like he doesn't dodge. Right, but that was because of crits. That's why he's thinking about that. He is literally thinking about what he can use with that because he doesn't dodge to stop people from shooting him. So he's looking for a different route for using this skill. So that's, that's why he pops up with that. Second, dodge now works the way everyone played it before anyway. You declare a dodge. You'd roll the dice, and at the end, you'd be like, oh, I'm going to move over here, which is not the way it's supposed to be played. You're supposed to determine which way you're going to dodge before the roll. Nobody did that. We started as a, as a meta, like trying to focus on, hey, we need to remember to do this. But there's just so many, I am super guilty of it. Like you roll the dice, and then at, at the complete end of the order, you're like, oh, I'm going to move my two inches over here. And that was the wrong way to do it. So the, one of the things they did is they just made it the way that people play it anyway, which is also nice because really it works fine this way. Yeah, it's kind of got a, a functional authority. Uh, as far as like the new dodge uh, mechanics, uh, I've been finding these absolutely fantastic, especially the change to being able to move in the active turn. That has come up in so many of my games and how I've been playing. Uh, specifically, I've been playing a lot of the new Polaris bear pods out of the Cosmoflot sectoral from uh, Ariadna. And... A couple of these rule changes combined makes close combat models a lot more viable. So what I've been doing is moving the model up on their first move value, which is six inches, but keeping them out of line of sight. And then they have a fizz of 16. So even without line, uh, line of fire at a minus three, I'm still on a 13 there. Rolling my dodge and dodging another four inches around the corner to gain line of sight on somebody. But because it's not moved to the resolution, they don't get an ARO to my model. And now I'm starting within 10 inches, my both of my move values, and on a new order, I can spend that to clear a berserk action and just charge into close combat and smash their face with a trench hammer. And it is very satisfying to pull off and very viable to do now with the change to active turn dodge move and no AROs on the dodge move. Well, let's clarify, like, that is the way to do berserk that's the way you get berserk done now instead of running out and getting shot you move up do the dodge to get into line of sight they can't affect that then you do your do your berserk berserk being a, a change from n3 which used to be the rule berserk and assault now it functionally is the same thing as the assault and what was always a, a challenge in n3 was assault only worked if you were in line of fire with your target and so you had to expose your model to some f form of return fire. So what, Ian, what you've just articulated is just the workaround now on how to pull off that skill. Yes, and it's very effective now. And this is a big boost to, I said, all CC-based mo models because that was something that was very lacking in 
some of the prior editions was the absolute lethality of shooting, which is good, but it meant that CC, and there's tons of models that are great at it, had a difficult time actually being able to use those skills. Now, it's a lot easier to use, and they're a lot more effective. Any other thoughts on, on the dodge mechanic? Try some dodging. Try some different things with dodging. One of the things that dodging is very good for is making your opponent waste more orders to kill you. So if you've got a higher fizz than you have a shot, or you're taking less of a penalty on your fizz than you would be taking on a shot, throw some dodges, make them spend some extra orders. That hasn't changed since N3. That's still you know totally viable. Just now you get to use it a lot more and a lot easier. Absolutely. Another thought I had was there was a clunky mechanic in N3, especially related to approaching an opponent out of line of fire, whether that was in smoke or it was around a corner. But if you approached your opponent within their zone of control and canceled your stealth, they had to then react with a dodge change face. That was the only ARO that was allotted to them. Yeah. And then you could then move into base-to-base contact with them or that you could shoot through that smoke if you had MSV2 without taking the risk of a return fire. There were all these little kind of janky mechanics around that interaction. And because it was just a dodge change face where you weren't actually moving the model, it was only staying in the same position. It made your interaction very predictable that you knew where your target was, what you needed to do. You could get into close combat with them, etc. Now with this mechanic of the dodge where you can move at least two inches, you're not guaranteed to get into close combat with that kind of a maneuver. You're not guaranteed to keep someone in smoke or that like they could get out of the way, etc. So I think that cleaned up some of that funky mechanics related to that issue. Yeah, for sure. I think it's just cleaner. And like I said in the beginning, it's elegant. All right, let's talk then about the third thing I want to talk about, which is cover. So cover works a little bit different now. Ian, talk us through how cover works in N4. So cover is any time that your model's volume of their silhouette is obscured from the direction of the attacker, you get cover. Now, you do have to have your volume obscured. You have to be in base contact with said cover in intervening between you and the opposing model. But now uh, it is any amount of obscuring gives you cover. Prior in N3, you had to have at least 20% of your model had to be obscured to get that cover. That is not the case now. It has made cover very easy to get. But the biggest thing here is it speeds the game up by not... It takes away the argument of what constitutes 20%. Do you have cover? Do I not have cover? No, no. It's easy to tell you have cover. You now get cover from standing on top of buildings. And that is a big change, just automatically getting that, because technically the building you're standing on is obscuring the bottom of your volume, and that is uh, how the game is now played. That's a big change, and that's taken a lot to get used to, though. I think that from a simulation standpoint, N3 was probably better, but from a tournament standpoint with balanced gameplay, this is easier because there's no argument. It's just yes or no, and it's pretty easy to tell yes or no. So I think that there's going to be a lot less judges needed to determine lines of sight. There's a lot less relying on someone's benefit of the doubt to get your cover. It's now you have cover. And because cover now is ubiquitous, it's easy to get across the board. We kind of have to approach the game with factoring in my opponent is likely to have cover in most 
situations unless I'm able to way outflank them or come in from behind. And there's a lot of new rules that allow for that. So we'll get to that, I'm sure, at some point. But it also then factors in and increases the value, contextually increases the value of other rule sets like marksmanship, for instance, where you're negating the effects of cover when you're shooting, things like that. One of the examples I have related to both the, the issue of dodge and then the issue of cover, especially cover from elevation. The very first game I played in N4, I had the opportunity to play with Nick Bear, um, Radka on uh, ITS. And he was running Nomads, Bakunin, I believe it was. He had a Harris with Kusanagi in it. And they were he was pushing into me with those three, trying to take down Dart. Dart was camped out behind a container box. And as he was pushing towards Dart, Initially, as he got into my zone of control, initially I thought, you know what, I will dodge away around the corner of the container and make it that much more difficult for him to get to me. And then I realized, wait a second, I can dodge vertically. I can, with Climbing Plus, I can run up the container and get on top. And because that resolved itself, that dodge resolved itself at the end of the order, I didn't take any incoming fire. Now I've got cover because I'm in an elevated spot and I'm looking at his three, um, his Harris, and I have EM grenades. So if he activates at all, I'm tossing an EM grenade that can splash onto all three members of his Harris team. And it was that kind of moment where you just, your eyes are open to the new flexibility, the dynamic play of these two rules, dodging and cover, and how that just changed how I even thought about the game up until that point. For sure, for sure. I think that one of the things that we've talked about a little bit locally here is that I think the stereotypical American style table may have too much terrain on it now. The tables that used to be lighter and they were made up of mostly scattered terrain are way more playable now. Before you're like, I know I need something that's taller. I need more buildings. We need more blocking line of sight. But now that cover is anything that you touch, the scatter tables, those tables are just full of the scatter terrain and not as many buildings are way playable now. And I think that the tables that are just, that used to be just packed with alleyways and sideways and all these buildings, I think that some of that terrain is going to come down now because everything gets you terrain now where it used to be like you needed some big bulky stuff on the table to get to cover. Yeah, it's interesting how the the layout of tables will morph with just that basic rule, not just the cover that you can get from scattered terrain, but the elevation and how the game opens up on the top end of like multiple levels and becomes way more dynamic up above as well. You're not just locked into hugging railings and walls, etc. Like there's a whole new landscape that you get to play the game on in multi-elevated table setups. For sure, for sure. I think it's still going to be valuable to hug corners and hug railings because eventually someone else is going to get up to that same level as you or or higher than you. So having something that's still in front of you is going to be advantageous. But you can move across the rooftop to get to the, the, the next piece of cover and still have cover if you need to do that. If somebody pops out, that's that's really nice. Or if you're trying to gain an elevated spot so that you have overwatch over a certain area of the board, it used to be you have to go prone to gain that cover. And now you can just stand up right and move freely across the board and in some ways have even more a view of the table than you did before. And I think that might open up some sniper nests. I think 
at least at the beginning, I think we'll see snipers standing up on sniper towers again for a little while because they're going to get cover and anything that's down is going to get cover. And because you can get cover off anything, it's going to be easier to move up through cover. So having something that's above that has a really good line of sight on somebody, you know, moving from cover to another piece of cover to catch them out is going to be advantageous. So I think we'll see some sniper towers. I don't know if it'll hang around because that was kind of universally reviled towards the end of N4 or of N3. But I think we'll try it out and see if that's advantageous or not. Ian, any final thoughts on the issue of cover and gameplay around that? I generally like the simplicity of it. Like I said, I feel there's a little bit of an adjustment and a little weirdness coming from getting cover just from standing on elevation. Coming from how it used to be where you had to be prone on the edge of a building in order to claim cover. And now you can just get it for just standing there and you're looking at the table and it's like, oh, this guy is standing on the edge of the building. I can see his entire volume. Why is he getting cover? Rules-wise, he definitely is because of the angle, but it has definitely been a mental adjustment to think in terms of that guy has cover when you're looking at it from a model's perspective going, there's no way this guy has cover, but he does now. Adapt and grow. That's how we evolve. So finally, let's talk about hacking. In some ways, you could argue that there has been a reduction of hacking in terms of the streamlining of the the amount of hacking programs, but in other ways, that kind of less becomes more because hacking has become way more prominent a feature in the game. And I can I think I can say this like concretely, where in Colorado, hacking was not a prominent part of the game in N3, and that might have been because of the lethality of killer hackers as they were introduced in the game, or the lack of a target-rich environment, but I have seen way more hacking take place in the games that are being played in our local meta now than ever were before. So Nathan, why don't you talk to us a little bit about how the less is more kind of philosophy of Corvus Belly with hacking has kind of opened things up and created new possibilities with tactics and gameplay. Starting from a N3 to N4 standpoint, what we're looking at is all of the hacking devices got reduced to the one or two things that they're kind of iconically known for. And they also got rid of the assault hacker, which was just kind of a redundant device. So the killer hacker kills things. The normal hacker takes over tags and spotlights things, just like the basic things. The Evo repeater now does, the airdrop is now a program. It's not an automatic ability, it's a program now. And it also buffs the remotes. So each hacking device has what it's good for. And the the killer device also gives you cyber mask. Device plus gives you like white noise and cyber mask in addition to, I think, the regular hacking device programs. So just every hacking device has been distilled into its like most iconic features and most useful features. There's no more like, which of these two programs is going to give me the better dice rolls or which of these two programs or which of these 10 programs do I need to run to figure out which one is going to be the correct one to use in this situation. It's a lot easier to find the program you need. It's a lot easier to figure out what it works against. And they made Spotlight an ARO for some reason. Cool. Yeah, that was definitely a shakeup for some of the players in our meta. And it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. Why doesn't it go away? It does. You have to reset. In fact, a a number of programs just last and aren't turn-based anymore, but they just stay in play until they get canceled, reset out of, or you use a new program. 
yeah, in the end, I think I think it's good that they they made all these changes. I think hacking is more fun. I think it's easier to put into your list, and it affects the game more. And I, all those things are fantastic to me. Ian, as a primarily Ariadna player, you don't hack very much. So, what are your thoughts on hacking? My thoughts on hacking is that uh, I use an APHMG for that. So. Uh... <laughs> No, we uh, actually have one of the best hackers in the game, uh, in my opinion, in access to the war driver, because you have a hacker, if you just want a specialist, that can cancel hacking attacks, or you can get one with a full hacking device, but the key here is that it has sixth sense, and having a hacker with sixth sense is pretty nice of being able to deal with things that are coming at you from out of your line of sight. And other side of this is that while the majority of Ariadna is not hackable, uh, there's about four models that are that are all uh, newer heavy infantry in terms of the lore. The change to Spotlight alone has actually been very effective against Ariadna because you can use it on anything unlike every other hacking program, and it's a persistent state. So until that model dies or resets out of it, taking a minus three to their whip, your opponent is getting a plus three ballistic skill to shoot at them, and it opens up for guided attacks. And guided attacks were very iffy and hard to set up in prior editions, or at least in N3. N2 is a little bit of a different story there, but in N3, they were hard to set up for. And now, not so hard to set up for between uh, Spotlight and Ford Observing and being targeted as a persistent state, it's now a thing, and Ariadna players need to watch out for repeater nets now because you may be getting guided missiles in your face if you're not careful. Yeah, I remember those first few weeks of N4 when Brady started bringing his Nomad list that was chock full of pitchers, repeaters, hackers, and his guided missile, and he got into a couple different engagements with a couple other members of our community who essentially brought N3 lists to an N4 fight. And the amount of his ability to spam spotlight and then rain down missiles from everywhere. For a while there, our community was like, is this going to be the new meta list? Is there, How do you beat this? So what do we do? How, like It was looking like it was going to be meta-defining. I think for a couple of armies it might be. I think for... Like specifically some nomad lists that can bring a lot of cheap troops, that can bring a lot of repeaters, that can bring a lot of hackers. And yeah, you can just throw the missile bot in there. I think that there's a couple of forces that have a good way to make this like the primary attack piece. But I think in general, a missile bot is going to be a, a nice backup piece, especially if you're bringing a bunch of forward observers or hackers. It's just a nice backup piece. If somebody does walk through and get spotlit, First order and your turn, you can start raining missiles on it. Like, why not? It's a great way to use that tool. There's a couple of armies that can actually do some pretty heavy guided missile attacks. If you look at Ariadna to a degree, because they can take multiples, although they have a harder time having access to a single hacker for the most part, but we're like mostly on forward observing. And every specialist is one. Yes. Dash Shot, though, is perfect because Dash Shot has tons of hackers and access to pitchers and things like that and can take a combination of Hawk missile remotes and Ariadna missile remotes, which opens up the rather devastating tactic of coordinated guided missile strikes. 
Yeah, I definitely think that they're in the running for making that a, you know, a primary tactic. I think Onyx can do it fairly well. We've got some pitcher throwers, a lot of decent hackers, and you're probably going to bring a bunch of remotes anyway. So adding in the, the I think, T-Drone with missiles isn't a bad choice. Any faction that can throw a missile drone into a, a link, whether it be a defensive link or a, or a Harris, I think that that's an option as well, because if your link gets bogged down, you forward observe it or you spotlight it and then you just hit it from around the corner with a guided missile. So I think that is an option. I don't think that's going to be a primary strategy for most lists, but I think there's a couple of sectorals that could really pull that off as like the primary attack piece being a combo of spotlight, forward observe and missiles. Osvasti actually, I think, can pull it off pretty well with their access to the guided sniper rifle, which automatically becomes a template, and they can take a decent amount of those as well as tons of hackers and infiltration and things like that. But the the T-Drone's cheaper, so unless you really want to do like the coordinated guided fire, uh, I think you're, you'll probably see the, the missile. I've run it a couple of times. I think I fired it once, and I think it was at your unknown ranger that I hit. It's pretty much the only time I've ever fired it, because just the the traditional way of doing things still works. So spending the extra orders to kind of do the the one-two punch, specifically for Shazvasti, I like I didn't think that it was great. It was kind of a backup piece for me. Oh, absolutely. Although in that game, that was absolutely hilarious after the Unknown Ranger took out your uh, Noctifer on a crit on a four, and then you just said, screw you, and just annihilated him with guided missiles. I mean, I had to just look at it and go, yeah, I accept this. I'm okay with this. No more of you. Go Captain America. Go to pieces. Yeah, let's transition then away from those four big kind of overarching changes, and let's spend what time we have remaining talking about maybe some of the more granular or minor changes in rules that you guys have uncovered or come across in gameplay and how that's helping you rethink a little bit. So I'll, I'll lead in. I thought we could take turns, but I'll lead in and, and just say, one of the things that I've been very pleasantly surprised with is the rule changes around remotes. The fact that they can, they can now dodge uh, without the penalty the fact that they can go prone, the fact that their fizz has generally been um, moved up across the board. All of these components have led to some changes in how I think about using remotes, especially as I'm running OSS with Aleph right now. So if I'm running my Dakini link team, for one thing, I'm almost always now bringing the missile bot as a part of the link. And there's a couple factors going into that. I want the template. I like that it has the guided trait like Nate, you articulated just a moment ago. But another thing that's been kind of eye-opening for me is generally speaking, I tend to try to avoid uh, long-range ARO engagements. I don't like to keep things standing up in general other than post-humans, which can absorb the punishment and not lose me orders. But I'm much more, I'm finding myself much more likely now to leave that missile bot up, looking down a lane in an overwatch position, primarily because if you take it down, it will go prone and you'd have to take three wounds off of it for it not to be able to be resurrected again. And with high whip engineers in my list and my faction, where I can reliably raise that bot back up and relink it, it just has become way more of a resilient piece. Uh, likewise, when I'm deploying my link of Dakinis, I find so much more utility in being, being able to have some of them go prone rather than all sitting up, able to be taking incoming. So uh, I'm very pleased with what's going on with remotes right now. What do you guys think about remotes? 
I've always loved remotes. Uh, they're one of the more interesting and fun things that you can play with in the game. I like that you can buff them. Uh, I've always liked that you can buff them. I like that there's different ones for different factions that do slightly different things. Like all the different combat remotes, I, I think they're fantastic. Some of the changes, like some of them lost the the little drop repeater sensor repeater things. Uh, sniffers, there it is. Some of them lost sniffers because this like the sniffer is not a thing anymore. Yeah, all the flash pulls. Bought. Yep. So that was that was a little that was a little frustrating to me because I I really like the building the big sensor nets when possible. But uh, yeah, I I think the the remotes are pretty awesome in the current meta. Yeah, I uh, I like remotes. Uh, I don't obviously use them a whole lot. Having access to one that's not great unless you have a lot of other stuff to support it in very specific ways. But in outside of Ariadna, I find myself uh, using remotes quite a bit. They are very have a tons of profiles. They are just very good. Have a lot of utility in them. You know, there's kind of a remote depending on faction that'll do anything you want and they work very 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 well sometimes too well in older editions uh ruishi <clears throat> smoke <clears throat> do you want to talk older editions talk about like tr bots with mines yeah yeah that's not not, not necessary oh wait ariadna actually still has one of those yeah but it's not a tr hmg with mines <laughs> no no it's a tr missile bot with mines N2, that was everybody's like main attack piece. It was if you didn't have a TR bot with mines, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. I, I like the way that remotes are working. Specifically, like towards the end of N3, we got some really interesting new ones. The camo remote and the, was it the Rafik that has a uh, Red Fury Ford Observer? Satlock. Uh, I love the Rafik in Dashat specifically. I was using that to run up and use the uh, Satlock ability to spotlight people behind walls and then call in coordinated guided missile strikes. Sweet. Okay, how about uh, Ian... Give me another minor rule change that you're finding new possibilities with. The change to multispectral visor level one being able to now see through smoke and shoot, although at a penalty of minus six, is absolutely fantastic, especially for my chosen faction. Yeah, Ariadna's high tech now. Ariadna doesn't have any multispectral visor level two or higher, which allows you to see through smoke with no penalty, but we have tons of MSV1 on different profiles. And the scary thing is, is that especially in US Ariadna, there is quite a few profiles that combine smoke grenades with direct template weapons. One of my favorites is the Maverick Biker, who can now fire a smoke grenade at a corner of a building, drive into the smoke, and use direct templates from a boarding shotgun onto somebody with little threat of retaliation because they're probably going to be dodging. Absolutely. I was talking with Eric, original recipe, Eric, and we were talking about Uxia, and it was revelatory to see that not only can she infiltrate on a plus six, so she's landing on, what is that, 16s? Just outside your deployment zone. She can drop her own smoke, and then, yeah, she's got a boarding shotgun, so she can template through that smoke. I mean, she would wreck a link of Dakini. I think there's a lot of opportunity now. The Ludwan is a really fun piece with MSV1 and that heavy flamethrower. That's a really fun piece. Anything that had MSV1 and like a nano pulser now has a new tactic. A lot of it's going to help defend your zone from warbands. Like the, the warbands are just going to come run, run up the smoke into your zone. Having MSV1 and some template direct templates is going to be a really interesting way to defeat that. The key with them having direct templates is they're not taking that minus six penalty. Correct. Okay, Nathan, how about you? What's a new change uh, on a rule that you're finding a lot of possibilities with? Got to go with Protheon. 
like it was always one of my favorite rules. I love the vampire and being able to stack it with a close combat weapon is gross and stacking it with your martial arts level now is gross. It's very good. It's it's always been one of those you got to get that model into combat to do it. But now when it gets there, it's going to be really terrifying. I think it's probably one of my favorite rules in the whole game is just milking some wounds until now you're a tiny tag man just like Achilles. Yes. How about the command token that the first turn player can spend to keep a second model in reserve? What is this? That's just what I was going to say. Honestly, that was exactly what I was going to say. This is not okay. I'm not okay with this at all. The active turn is already so good that like reinforcing the active turn more, especially the first turn active turn. Oh, it's, it's too good for me. Don't like it. I mean, I'm a huge proponent of any deployment skill. Obviously, deployment is hugely important with being successful in this game. And any advantage you can get where you can kind of out-deploy or be able to see the lay of the land but still have initiative. That's why Strategos is a great skill. But man, that new ability to use one of your command tokens when you're going first to hold an additional model in reserve, especially for someone who, like me who runs post-humans, that just becomes a way to, I both have initiative and I can still counter-deploy my opponent and gain an advantage, find a gap, gain a find some leverage point. I I don't feel like there's been nearly enough conversation about how powerful this one particular rule is. Especially combined with Stratagos to get effectively three reserves. Exactly. I mean, essentially, you can you can hold a third of your, your list in reserve and all the important pieces. It's too good. Now, I'm not going to say that I'm not going to use it if I go first, but there are two things that I think a lot of people complain about with the last edition of Infinity. One of them was the complexity of the rules, and the second one was first turn alpha strikes are brutal. And I think this just reinforced first turn alpha strike. So I don't, I really don't know what they were going for here. I guess it's not the end all of all rules, but being able to put that tag down where you want it and put that sniper where you want it or and putting that knocked for where you want it, uh, it just seems too good to me, guys. Yeah, yeah. How about combat jump? With a, a greater need to be able to have reach in your list and extend, and especially if your opponent has turtled up and you need to go dig them out, or if your opponent has advanced up the board and left themselves an opening, but they're still guarding the flanks, they're, they're guarding the sides. The new rules around combat jump, are, I think, are super important. The fact that they've virtually no liability now in attempting to drop in with what used to be known as air, airborne deployment, I think that also is going to be a significant component in list building, especially for vanilla lists. I mean, they had to. No one dropped airdrop troops except for the ones that explode. Like, there's the risk of that was not worth the gain. It was just easier to either get smoke down on the edge of the table and walk on or use like a Van Zant instead. So I think that removing the template, which is kind of what happened in the last ITS season, that it was gone. But now not scattering into under the guns of a five-man link team or something is fantastic. It's going to mean that people will take that risk a lot more because uh, if nothing else, I'm on, I'm in a, I can put him on a safe spot in my own deployment zone to make sure uh, along that edge where he's not going to just explode immediately. I think more people will use that ability. And I think that's why that changed. 
I would agree. Uh, it functions more like infiltration during the game instead of during deployment. So it's very simple to use now. There is no risk. The only thing that I've noticed that I feel is a little wonky with it is when it comes to AI beacons, which only affects Aleph and Combined Army, where the opponent, your opponent has these. They can just place it on the board edge and then make the roll, and whether they succeed or fail, guess what? It's going to be exactly where they placed it regardless because of how the rule works. There's no no risk on those models anymore, but again, they're four points, so I guess I can deal with that. I would say that's working as intended. Preach, brother, preach. Yeah, it doesn't hurt that we're the two that use them. <laughs> yeah, so um, Ian, do you have a, an additional rule that you want to highlight? Oh, yeah. Let's talk about regeneration. Prior editions, regeneration was a bit of a weird rule. It allowed you to spend an order to make a roll on an unconscious model that had it in order to heal themselves and come back up. And if you failed, they took another wound and killed themselves. And they've changed that now doesn't give you shock immunity like it used to, but it doesn't cost orders anymore either. It now happens during the states phase at the end of the turn, and you automatically make the roll, and if you pass, you stand up. But the important thing here is, is that it doesn't cost an order to do anymore. That's a genius fix. Most of the time, you would be making that regen roll under the guns of someone, of the guy who shot you. So they were just going to put rounds into you as you're trying to heal yourself. So being able to do it out of risk of ARO is nice. Losing the shock immunity, eh, that's, that is what it is. The unnesting of rules kind of makes it so that you can you could still put that ability on someone if they wanted it to be there still. And I think that, didn't they also get rid of auto med kit? It's just all covered under regeneration now? I believe that is the case. Because there, they, they were. There was really like only one difference between the the roles anyway. It was the there's just the shock immunity, right? Yes. I, since they did effectively the same thing, and taking away shock immunity from the unnesting makes them exactly the same. So why have two things that do the same thing? Exactly. And Nathan, how about you? One more. Uh, train skills. The giving it just a little bonus instead of a big penalty is kind of nice. I I like the way that works. Uh, I think they clarified it to say that it's only your first move that gets that bonus. So there's no 7-7 seven, seven Sphinx running across the table, but whatever. Uh, I like it. I think it works It works great. It gives a couple of units a nice you know, one-inch little boost, and it doesn't really penalize everyone else. I think that's fantastic. It's a feel-better kind of approach to rule, rule building. I think what it's really going to do is it might convince people to put some terrain on the table that includes terrain rules. Because before it was like, oh, if I put this big thing here or like like personally i have a varuna table like no one wants to play on that varuna table because you're screwed if you if you're on it and you don't have a bunch of terrain of the of the water terrain or total or total terrain skill so now if you're already starting in that water you're moving normally it's just fine but if you have the skill you're getting a little a little t- taste of a bonus for my last one and i'm shocked ian you didn't pick this but impetuous and the change to impetuous rules. I feel like so much of the liability for impetuous has been taken away now. Yes, you can't take cover anymore, but one of the main tactics I always used when I'd come up against warbands and other things that had impetuous is I loved drawing them across the board in interesting ways so that I could take pot shots at them downfield. But that's no longer possible, really. It functionally, it takes that tactic out of the out of my repertoire and it makes uh the impetuous 
troop way more reliable. What do you think, Ian, about Impetuous and the rule change? I think that Impetuous got so much better that it's not even funny. The fact that it is completely optional because Extremely Impetuous doesn't exist. I don't have to spend orders to not be Impetuous. I can choose to use it as I want, which makes it much more versatile situationally, is fantastic. Then you combine that with the fact that I don't have to go running screaming out of cover directly towards the nearest model, unless they're within my zone of control, and I can do kind of whatever I want with it. Now, that said, if you activate Impetuous and you use a movement skill, you do have to still move your full movement value towards the enemy deployment zone, but the stipulation here is that you just have to be closer at the end of the move than you were at the start. So you can move diagonally and a lot more creatively there. And if I do have to move towards an enemy model because they're in my zone of control, that's still kind of a win for me because you have to move towards them with the intent of getting into close combat. And if they're in my zone of control, they might have a bad day, especially with a lot of the Ariadna stuff that is impetuous, has skills like Berserk. So you're going to have a great day. Yes, you're you're happy man, aren't you? Yes, I am. Okay, we're going to wrap things up here uh, and transition to some closing comments. But before we get to our final thoughts, I want to give a special shout out to Nick Bear and Devin Bradley, ITS names Radka and the Revan Kissed, for helping us with researching for this episode and coming up with a whole slew of of rules that we didn't even get to touch on tonight. Also, and they're just excellent players in their own right. Also, if you want to support the show, subscribe on all the standard podcast feeds, follow us on all the social media platforms, and actually join our Discord to be a part of the community that we're building here. And if you want to support us through Patreon that we will have set up. So Ian, Nathan, any final thoughts as we are about to sign off? Uh, you know, just stay safe and, you know, theory craft, read the rules, do what you can to, to keep the skill sharp. And then when we come out of this, uh, we'll, we'll get some games. What Nathan said, and I look forward to seeing everybody across the table. Sweet. So this has been Andrew, Ian, and Nathan, and that's the meta.